So very good to see you tonight. Have another opportunity to be together to worship and honor God in song and prayer and consideration of His Word. I invite you your attention to His Word in a moment as we study it together. Uh, I uh, meant to mention this morning, and uh, I did in class, but uh, it's so good to have my uh, nephew here uh, for the next few days, uh, Nathan, my uh, my uh, brother's son from uh, Greenville, Texas. So. Came to play golf. I'm not sure we'll get that in. We'll see. Maybe the weather will cooperate a little bit, but it's just good to be with him uh, anyway. So uh, appreciate that he's with us. I want to study tonight with you about a topic that we've we've spoken on before. It's not a, a new topic, but it's certainly one that we need to continually remind ourselves of and, and test ourselves against when it comes to how we study the Bible. It's really, as much as anything, a study about how we handle the Scriptures. Because we very often hear people approach their use of the Scriptures by saying, it doesn't say not to. Comforted by the belief that if the Scriptures are silent, that there is therefore permission to believe something or to do something, uh, without antagonizing God, without being against His will in any way. The unfortunate reality is that this approach to the Scriptures that says, well, it doesn't say not to, and therefore I, am at, I have license, I have the right to, to do something or believe something, challenges the whole concept of Bible patterns. Now, there can be no doubt that over the last 20, 30, 40 years, there's been a significant battle uh, for the hearts of brethren uh, over how to establish and apply Bible authority. In fact, it goes back beyond 40 years for certain. I, I know that. But there's been, there have been, uh, that, that same basic issue has, has showed itself repeatedly in the history of God's people, uh, at least here in this country. Uh, and and it does so with this idea, this concept that well, it doesn't say not to, and and uh, and really it is about whether or not Bible patterns are binding, whether or not we can go to the Bible and find authority through its commandments or its direct statements, through the apostolic author, uh, the apostolic examples contained therein, or by inferences necessarily drawn from what is said. Uh, or whether those patterns uh, have, uh, well, they have some modicum of relevance, but are not to be uh, seen necessarily as binding uh, upon us today. When we think with the idea, it doesn't say not to. When we when we gauge our use of the Word of God with a, it doesn't say not to point of view, then like it or not, what we're doing is challenging the whole notion of of Bible patterns, and essentially. We are forced into a position that says Bible patterns are not binding today. And, and so what, what it ends up doing is advancing a broadened fellowship, uh, a sometimes referred to as unity and diversity, moral diversity, doctrinal diversity. But this notion of it doesn't say not to necessarily broadens fellowship. Now, it may be that God wants that broader fellowship, we're going to analyze that from Scripture. It may be that, that God wants us to say it doesn't say not to, and therefore we can do it. So we're going to keep our minds open. We're going to find out, is that the way God wants us to use His Scripture? If we're going to have an open-minded study of Scripture like the Bereans, you know, who, who were ready to examine the Scriptures, whether these things are so, then we have to be open to the possibility maybe God wants us to say it doesn't say not to, and, and therefore have permission but understand when we take that view, when we make that application, it broadens fellowship and it is so used. Also, what it does is rationalize differences in doctrine and even disobedience to what is said. There are some consequences to this viewpoint that, well, the Bible doesn't say not to and therefore I have permission to believe or act. There are consequences to the view. It doesn't stand isolated and alone without ramifications. Unfortunately, usually, usually what it means when, uh, when someone says it doesn't say not to, it means that God has already spoken on what He wants. 
God has already said something. And that sometimes this appeal is used as an attempt to add something to what God has already said. That just is borne out factually as we see it being used from time to time and place to place. It may not be that always somebody understands that's what's being attempted, but usually, and really what we, when we talk about the Bible being silent, we have to understand that really what, that, what we're saying is, well, God has said something on that subject, but He's been silent on, some other, on other matters. And whether or not that's going to give us the right to act or whether or not it restrains us is really at the heart of this study. Um, at first, it sounds pretty plausible. It, pretty, it sounds pretty reasonable. You didn't say not to. You know, and, and, and we justify ourselves that way a lot of times, but really, upon examination of this idea, it falls far short of respecting divine authority. It does not respect Bible authority uh, as it, really it draws upon the wisdom of men. We will not find God endorsing, advising, directing, commanding that we take this approach to His Word. Uh, that, but in fact, that it grows out of man's wisdom. It does not grow out of the Word of God. And let me just demonstrate a few verses uh, that that uh, show that. You know, this view it doesn't say not to assumes that silence of Scripture gives us consent, gives us the right to act, permission uh, to to believe or do something. But in Scripture, over and over and over. For, uh, something very different is said. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2 to Israel, uh, the Word of God was, you shall not add to the Word which I command you. Now, if I say it doesn't say not to, and so I'm going to act, am I not adding an action that is not there? And is that not then the very thing that God warned Israel not to do? nor take from it. If God has said something and I have refused to do what He said, then I am taking something away from the Word of God. But he says, but then he emphasizes that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. He says, this is the way you keep My commandments. You do not take from them and you do not add to them. To say it, it doesn't say not to, and therefore I have permission to act, is another way of admitting I'm going to add something that is not there. Now is that the position you wish to take? Is that the ground you wish to stand upon and, and, and anchor your faith in? A lot, of do, a lot of folks do. But we want to see if that's where God wants us to plant our feet. In Deuteronomy 12 and verse 32, Again, God said to Israel, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. So God gives His commandment. God reveals His will. And He says, do not add to it. Do not take away from it. In fact, being careful to observe it means that I will not add to it, nor take from it. In 1 Corinthians 4 in the New Testament, we see the same principle at work when the Apostle says in verse 6 of the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians, These things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us. So there's something to learn here. Learn in us not to think beyond what is written. Now, to think beyond what is written, is that not to add to what has been written? To think beyond it? He said, uh, some versions say, the King James says, not to think of men above that which is written. But the principle remains the same. If we go above or beyond what is written in our thinking, in our application, then have we not then violated that, that point? Have we not then done the very thing God said not to do? Second John 9. Whoever goes onward or transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. So to go beyond, 
to transgress, to cross, uh, uh, to, to trans or go across, to go beyond what is written, go beyond the doctrine of Christ, the teaching of Jesus, he says, is to forfeit my fellowship with God. And so, time and time again, we are, the emphasis is made do not add, do not go above, do not go beyond what's written. Of course, the book of Revelation ends in that same way. Chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13 says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you heard from Me in faith and in love which are in Christ Jesus. Hold fast the pattern. So our question is, is the pattern, it doesn't say not to and therefore I can add to it, or is the pattern something that I can hold to and it is sufficient in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus? That's really the issue between uh, before us in this subject of the silence of the Scriptures. Does biblical silence give us consent to act or does it restrain us? Does silence restrain us? And again, pointing out that that it's not, not necessarily that God said nothing on a subject, but that He has said something on that subject. And, and when we appeal to silence to approve our conduct, it's generally because we want to add to what's already been said. It is, it is a, it is an adding to, a thinking above, a transgressing or, or trans, uh, a transgressing or going across or beyond what has already been revealed. So, that's the ground we want to cover tonight. Someone says, but God didn't say not to do it. Well, again, I challenge you to think about that. And the challenge is, yes, He did. When you say, well, God didn't say not to, fact is, God said to do something. And it's that that which God said to do that we must be content with and recognize that that is entirely all God wants us to do. To not add to that. To not take from that. But to be careful to observe all that He said. You see, this does boil down in a lot of ways to the subject of necessary inferences. Now, those who would appeal to the silence of the Scriptures as giving you the right to do something, Loathe necessary inferences. And yet, we live by necessary inferences all the time. The Bible is full of necessary inferences because that is a legitimate way of communication. Um, Acts, the, the 15th chapter, in, in verses 12 and 13, necessary inference was used to demonstrate the that the law that the the law was not to be bound upon Gentiles. Necessary Jesus appealed to necessary inference when he said God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Jesus used necessary inference. He charges us to use it in Luke the third, the twelfth chapter. You see, in Luke the twelfth chapter, there is the matter of the people wanting signs that he was the Christ. He give, was giving them sign after sign after sign in his works, in his miracles, in his words, and yet they're still arguing with him, objecting to him, refusing him. And he said, "An evil and adulterous generation asked for a sign." So many signs had been given to them. And so He challenges them in Luke 12, 54-57. He said to the multitude, when you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower's coming. And so it is. What do you do? You necessarily infer because the clouds are building up, it's going to rain. That's a necessary inference. You draw a conclusion based upon the evidence set before you. And it's a necessary conclusion because it happens, he says. When you see the south wind blow, you say there's going to be hot weather. And there is. Again, you draw an inference that is necessarily implied. You draw a conclusion from the evidence of the weather. We can read the signs of the weather. And so he says, hypocrites, let that soak in a little bit. Are we hypocrites? Unwilling to, to make the spiritual inferences 
of the truth of Jesus the Christ and His will. Look at this. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and the earth. How is it you do not discern this time? He expected them to use the same kind of necessary inferences to know the time in which they lived, the time of Messiah, that He was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? Why don't you judge what's right? He says, you need to. Why don't you judge what is right? And so that's what we want to do tonight. We want to judge tonight whether it doesn't say not to is right or wrong. Is that the right handling, the, the, the rightly dividing of the Word of God or not? So, you know, the way we, the way we um, test things, one of the ways we test an interpretation of the Bible to see if it's true and accurate is to apply our premise to other revealed subjects to see if it fits, to see if it works, to see if it's in harmony with, with if that's the right hermeneutic, long word, if that's the right way to interpret, if that's the right way, are we handling the Scriptures correctly when we, say, when we, uh, when we uh, have a premise that, well, it doesn't say not to, and, and it's, it's silent, so we have, we have permission there. Let's test that. Let's just, let's don't assume it being right or wrong. Let's test it and see if it, see what God's word reveals. So let's go to Noah and let's test it a minute. First, first of all here. God didn't say not to use oak to build the ark. Now, now we ask, could Noah have legitimately said, you know, I have to travel Three days from where I am to find gopher wood. But this oak wood is just two hours from where I live. Well, now, hmm, God said gopher wood, and I'm going to make some trips and get gopher, but you know, the oak is a lot more convenient. God didn't say not to use oak, so I'm going to use some oak as well as gopher. Now, would that have been okay? I think I'll, I think I know what your answer is, or it should be. You say, well, no, that's not okay, because let's go back and read what happened. When, when God said build the ark of gopher wood, then it later says that Noah did according to all that God commanded. Now, God saved him by grace through his faith. But Noah obeyed. It said, by faith, Noah, being warned of things not seen as yet, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and was made an heir according to the righteousness of faith. Noah did everything God commanded. We just studied this together just last Sunday. Remember verse 6 and Genesis 6.22? Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Is there any hint of oak in that text? Any hint of pine, maple, any other kind of wood? No, we say, no, he specified the kind of wood he wanted. He wanted gopher wood, Joe. You know that. Well, see, that's our, that's the point. God didn't have to say, don't use oak, don't use pine, don't use maple. He said what he wanted. Be careful to observe all that I command you. That's what Noah did. And he was, and he received grace from God because he lived by faith, obeying the word of God. And so, chapter seven, one, come into the ark, you and all your house, because I have seen that you are righteous. It was righteous for Noah to content himself with the gopher wood, even if he had to go three days' journey to find it, to mill it, to bring it back, to prepare it, and to use it. Wherever the gopher wood was, that's where God wanted him to go and get and use, because that's what God said do. Now, we can see that rather clearly. We can also see that God was silent about building a raft. Anything in there about building a raft? Maybe a secondary ship. Maybe, maybe the ark going to spring a leak. We got, we got to just have a backup plan. But again, He's silent. Now, the notion is, the idea is, 
there would have been nothing wrong with Noah to build another another uh, vessel. But the Scriptures are completely silent about that. In fact, I would challenge you to see that if Noah had built another structure in addition to the ark, that would have been a demonstration of a lack of faith in God. Not a demonstration of trust and obedience to God. No. Nothing in that text saying that Silence gave him permission to do anything but what he was told to do. Let me illustrate it one other point in that very text before we go on. Go down, to, go to chapter 6 and verse 15. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. Its width, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. It seems simple enough, doesn't it? Here are the dimensions I want you to use. But now, if the premise is silence gives permission... It doesn't say not to is a legitimate way to approach the Word of God. Then why could not have Moses said, I'm going to build the ark 350 cubits long, 60 cubits wide, and 50 cubits high? Because he didn't say not to. Did he? He didn't say not to. Did he? No, he didn't say not to. He said what he wanted. He gave the dimensions he wanted. And either Noah obeyed as God revealed it, or he or in disobedience he would not have received salvation of the ark by grace through faith. See? So so far, at least in this illustration, silence giving permission is not faring very well. But let's go on a little farther. Let's think about Nadab and Abihu. And of course, these illustrations could be multiplied over and over again. But let's look at Leviticus 10 just because it's one of the more familiar ones that is often appealed to. You know, in Leviticus 9, Nadab and Abihu and their brothers, the other priests, were doing everything according to the prescribed manner. Verse 16, according to the Lord's commandment given through Moses, verse 10. Time and time again, they were offering the sacrifices exactly as God commanded, and God was pleased. And He showed His pleasure in verses 23 and 24, as the glory of the Lord appeared and fire came down from the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings. God was pleased. Because Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, their, their brothers, they were, they were following the prescribed manner that God had revealed. Oh, that's just being legalistic. Those were legalistic priests. Oh, that God was pleased with whatever they did because it was what He had commanded. And it says He was pleased. But then in chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, verse 1, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire on it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. Now they go beyond what God had commanded. God had not. There's a negative. He had been silent. He had not said this. Not a nothing. Silent. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. God said Nadab and Abihu did not regard him as holy. How? Because they offered fire it was profane. Fire He had not commanded them. Strange fire. You see, what is not approved by God is necessarily forbidden. It is not permitted. If so, why did God kill Nadab and Abihu? Surely their heart was right there, caught up in the excitement of the moment. The glory of God has appeared. The fire from heaven has consumed the offerings that they presented to Him. And so they rushed to burn incense. Oops. God didn't tell them to do that. And so in our urgency to do something good for God, we run past Jerusalem to get to Jericho and we do things without God's approval. Things He has not commanded. And we convince ourselves it's good. 
Just as surely they must have thought it was good right up to the moment God struck them dead. What's not approved by God is necessarily, by definition, forbidden by God. It's one or the other. There's not a no man's land, a, a, a demilitarized zone here and there and in between and gray area, all that kind of stuff. No. They didn't regard God as holy. They added to what He said. When we add to what God says, we're not regarding God as holy. That's why it's serious. That's why we must not do it. Let's go to the New Testament. In Hebrews, the 7th chapter. You see, now, someone says, well, God didn't say not to have priests from the tribe of Judah. God didn't say not to let people from Judah be priests. In Hebrews 7, this is... Look at, look at how it's presented here. Now, you remember... His, his context is Christ is a priest after the likeness of Melchizedek. But the, the old law, the law of Moses, had a Levitical priesthood, the sons of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. So he says, but now since Christ is a priest after the likeness of Melchizedek, the priesthood has changed. And that means necessarily the law has changed because you see, under the law, Jesus couldn't be a priest. He's from the wrong tribe. Now look how he says it in 13 and 14. He of whom these things are spoken, that's Jesus, belongs to another tribe of which no man is officiated at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Put it in our, in our term tonight. Moses was silent concerning priesthood in Judah. It doesn't say not to. No, it doesn't say not to. Except that it does by necessary inference because it tells us what He wants. And that necessarily eliminates all the others. When God is specific in His instruction, specifies the tribe and the family, the house of Aaron, no one else could be priests. Moses was silent. His silence didn't mean he didn't say not to. And so King Uzziah came into the temple and tried to burn incense and God struck him with leprosy. But the law said those who were of another tribe were tribe trying to do such things were under the death penalty. Numbers 3.10 Moses was silent. Well, not completely. He said what God wanted. And they weren't to add to it. That's the essence of the silence of Scripture. Now this becomes practical. We're going to make practical applications to us. Because see, it gets to the matter of authority in our lives. Who gave you this authority? You know when Jesus was overturning the, the tables at the temple? In Matthew 21, the last days of His life, and teaching the multitudes, they came to Him in the temple. The chief priests and the elders of the people confronted Him as He was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, see... They concluded, you need to tell us who gave you the power to turn these tables over, to upend all these things, and to say and do what you're doing. Where's that authority come from? Well, of course, Jesus answered their question with the question the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from men? And they were, either way they answered that, they were in trouble. See? Because their hearts weren't right. They said, we don't know. They, were, you know. they knew. They just didn't want to answer it. They didn't want to commit themselves. They were hypocrites in the matter. But you see, they, they, we need to draw the conclusions, not just say, oh, I don't know. You see, there was evidence of revelation. There was evidence that testified that Jesus was the Son of God among them. His teachings uh, verified by His miracles. And... They needed to draw the conclusion of who He was. We need to draw the conclusion that when His Word speaks to us, that that's all He wants of us and it's enough. It's sufficient before Him. And that we have no authority to add to it based on something that's not said or to take away from what is said. 
Application. The use of instrumental music in worship. The Bible, just like God identified and specified the type of wood for the ark, God has specified the type of music to give to God in worship. And that is vocal music. Ephesians 5.19 Let's look at that verse. We've got several others there and they all speak the same thing because there's a Bible pattern. Remember we said at the beginning, when we say it doesn't say not to, that, that challenges and, and, and argues against Bible patterns. There's a pattern for the music we worship God with in the New Covenant. That pattern is vocal music, singing. And Ephesians 5, though, it said, here it is, speaking to one another. It does not say playing to one another. It says speaking to one another. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, someone says, well, psalms had instruments in them. No. Psalms were written. Just like we have songs written in our book. They were words. And they were, in the Old Testament, often put to the lyre or put to an instrument, which was commanded by God, by the way. Second Chronicles 29-25. Had God's approval under the Old Covenant. Many things had God's approval under it that He doesn't approve today. So let's don't quibble about that. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What are we doing to these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs where we're speaking them to each other? Well, what does that mean when we're speaking them to each other? He says singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Making melody is solo. It means to pluck, to twang. Sometimes it was used to pluck a hair. Pluck a string. But you see, the instrument is not inherent in the word solo. It simply is the action of plucking. It's the verb. And, and, and what do you pluck? Your heart. It happens in your heart. It doesn't happen on an instrument, on a guitar string, or on a piano key. It happens in your heart. Now, it doesn't say not to play there, Joe. You can't go there and say that an instrument is condemned Why it doesn't say anything about an instrument. But you see, when we put the instrument there, we've just added to what God has commanded. We've just added to what He said. We've no longer been careful not to add to or take from, not careful to observe all that He has said, but now we're going to expand it. And we introduce the instrument. Now here's a question. Shall we burn the incense of the instrumental music before the Lord? Nadab and Abihu burned incense before God that He had not commanded. And He killed them because they didn't regard God as holy. What does it mean when I introduce instrumental music, something that God has been silent about, has not commanded? What does it say about my attitude toward God? If I understand it, it says I'm not regarding God as holy. Leviticus 10.3 I'm not being content with what God has said. In fact, I have become presumptuous toward God Amen. instead of honoring His holiness. Now, you judge what's right. Judge what's right here. If you think that I, we've misrepresented something here, then... Put it to the test of Scripture. Show us the error. Judge what is right. Luke 12, 57. That's the charge. Remember, we're told to test all things. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Try the spirits, whether they are of God. Let's try the spirit. Of, it doesn't say not to. And if you think it has justification, then answer the argument from Scripture. From Scripture. Let's, and let's do that because we want to find and know truth so that we can live truth. Not so we can win an argument, so we can understand truth and regard God as holy and give Him the service He's due. Well, let's make another application. Baptizing babies. You know, the Bible says that babies are the, the model of what we have to become to enter the kingdom. Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. It says, 
Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like little children, or as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, those who believe in original sin says that babies must be baptized because they have the stain of original sin. The Bible says that the child is the model that we must be converted to to enter the kingdom. That, the, that they are innocent before God. The Bible says he that believes and is baptized will be saved. A baby has no capacity to believe and therefore no need to be baptized. They're innocent. But here's the point. Shall we build an ark of infant baptism for babies to obtain grace through faith? Is that what we need to do? No, they don't need an ark to enter into to be saved. You see, in the Bible, baptism is likened unto the water that saved Noah and his house. He said, baptism also now saves you. Just as the water saved Noah and his family, they were saved through water. 1 Peter 3.20 Baptism saves us. Does it need to save babies? It doesn't say not to baptize babies, Joe. And that's the whole point. It doesn't say not to baptize babies. It tells us who to baptize. The sinner. The believer. The one who needs to be saved. They are safe. They are innocent. We can't say it doesn't say not to. If we can, then let's take up and let's start practicing baptizing babies. At least, you're not going to be able to object to it because it's on the same basis. Now, judge what's right. Remember, you judge what's right based on the evidence of revealed truth in this matter. What about church-sponsored recreation? See, the Bible says that the early saints were gathering for worship in Acts 2 and 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In the the in fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers, there is a reference to their spiritual edification in worship and learning of the Word of God. And then we also learn that they are living faithfully in verse 46. They continued daily with one accord in the temple. They were doing these things every day. They were worshiping, learning, hearing the Word of God daily. And they were breaking bread from house to house. They were communing with each other in their homes as they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Their souls were being fed the bread of life and their bodies are being fed from house to house with gladness and simplicity. 1 Corinthians 14.26 says, When you come together, let all things be done unto edification. 1 Corinthians 14.26 For this spiritual building up of the body of Christ. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, when that was not happening, when they were perverting the Lord's Supper, which should have been a memorial meal of the death of Jesus, they were bringing their own supper and corrupting the Lord's Supper. He said, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say? Saying that shall I praise you? He says, I will not praise you. I don't praise you. Because it's not praiseworthy. They were perverting the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Introducing their common meals. Someone says, but... But Joe, that's not what happens today. We have the Lord's Supper and then and when we say Amen and then we go down to the fellowship hall or, or the, the, the multi-purpose room or whatever is provided. And, and we all bring our covered dish and we all have the meal. And, and I say, well, that's part of the work of the church then, isn't it? Because the church is sponsoring it, promoting it, providing for it. The question is, is that the pattern of the New Testament? The pattern in this verse is if you're hungry, what's He say do? Now, again, what's He say do? He says, if you're hungry, do what? He says, eat at home. Oh, now you quibble. Well, are we quibbling? Let's look again. Verse 34. If anyone is hungry, well, let me, 33. My brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's the Lord's Supper. And we're supposed to tarry for one another, provide it for everybody. 
expect one another. Receive everybody in the eating of the Lord's Supper. But if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. Lest you come together for judgment, for condemnation. Now, it doesn't say not to have a covered dish after you eat. Well, we could go to the park and do that just fine. But here's the qu- the po- point is not worshiping where you eat and eating where you worship. The point is, is it part of the work of the local church when you come together to feed the body? Is that our work? He had the perfect chance to explain that to us here, and he did. He said, if you're hungry, eat at home. You come together, you don't come together for that purpose. That's not the work that you have when you come together. So here's my point. Shall we add to the work God has given the local church and conclude it is good? Just like Nadab and Abihu must have concluded burning incense was good. They did it. God didn't say not to. Well, God said what He wanted. Now you judge what's right based on what the Scripture says. Where did this practice begin? Of churches sponsoring, providing an opportunity and occasion, and promoting social activities. Potlucks is just the beginning of it. There are churches of Christ that have baseball fields and soccer fields and basketball courts. You name it. Bowling alleys and swimming pools even. Does the silence of the Scriptures allow it? But you see, where's the stopping point? It's a slippery slope that begins when we add to the silence of the Word of God. You judge what's right. When the Scripture is silent in the matter, we must not add to what's said, nor take away. So that when we come together, let us be sure that we're eating the supper the way we are taught to do so in that passage as well as others. What about gambling? You know, the Bible says, do unto others as you'd have them do to you. The Bible says, work with our hands that we have what we need to provide for ourselves and those uh, that we have responsibility and to help others who are in need. The Bible tells us not to be covetous in Colossians 3 and verse 5. In fact, he says covetousness is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. He says, be, be content with the things that we have. Hebrews 13 and verse 5. The gambler is not content. Gambling is not an action of contentment toward the material things of this world. It is, shall we covet another person's money and gamble to enrich ourselves by depriving him of his money? Isn't that what you do if you, if you start playing a card game, gambling a card game, or gambling any place, any time with, with money? The gambler is, is you're going to put your money out there, but you're trying to win somebody else's money. Not yours. You're trying to take somebody else's money. Stewardship. Treating them the way you want to be treated. You want somebody to take your money? Oh no. Then don't try to take theirs. Oh, it's just entertainment. Really? God, you know, just entertainment, entertainment doesn't make something right. That doesn't change the, the moral compass, although it does in a worldly thinking mind. So you judge what's right in the matter. And we treat others the way we don't want to be treated. And instead of working for our, our, our bread, we try to covetously take what is not ours at the expense of somebody else. You judge what's right. Oh, you, you are really stepping on toes, Joe. You really, you're, you're nosing around where you shouldn't. Well, am I? Or am I not challenging us to realize how we're going to use the Scriptures? Are we going to be, are we going to take what it says and mold ourselves after it? Or are we going to argue silent about those things and we have the right to do it? Because it has practical uh, ramifications in our lives. What about the use of recreational drugs? The Bible doesn't say not to use recreational drugs. It doesn't say, uh, what about alcohol? Marijuana, designer drugs like ecstasy and those sorts of things. 
It doesn't say that we can't use those privately or socially. Well, you know, actually it does. Actually it does. 1 Peter 4, verses 1-3. through The Bible says we're to have the mind of Christ. It says we're to put off the old mind. We're to no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time passes enough to have done the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness and lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Everything from the drinking parties to the drunkenness. You know, alcohol is a drug. Recreational taking of drugs that removes sober-mindedness is against the will of God. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Galatians 5.23 We're not being led by the Spirit when we choose to lose our self-control by putting into our bodies those things that facilitate that loss of self-control. But the Bible doesn't say not to. Well, I beg to differ with you. It does say not to. Shall we look at the drug when it sparkles in the cup as long as we don't linger over it until it bites us like the snake? You know, that's the point in Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, no, the point there is don't look at the wine when it sparkles in the cup. When it goes down smoothly because it, 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 it bites as, uh, as a serpent, as the adder. The Bible says don't start the process. Don't start the use. People argue though, oh, it doesn't say not to. Yeah, it does say not to. It says... Wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler, and whoever errs thereby is not wise. But you see, when first we begin to argue, silence gives consent, we'll convince ourselves the Bible's silent on the subject. Now you judge what's right. You judge what's right in the matter. Oh, we got have one more we've got to talk about, and that's wearing exposing clothing. Immodest clothing. Oh, the Bible doesn't say not to wear bikinis, short shorts, halter tops. You're just binding where the Lord doesn't bind. He's silent about those things, really. Or are we unwilling to make the application of what God says? First Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, In like manner that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, or with shamefastness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearl or costly clothing, but what is proper for women professing godliness with good works. He says shamefastness, sobriety, these are the uh, moderation. These are to be rooted fast within the person's character. And, and, and when that is so, then rather than the exposure on the one hand or the uh, uh, arrogant display on the other, those things are eliminated. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, as he goes on to say. You see, the real the, the problem has to do with the heart that displays itself then in the kind of clothing we choose to wear or the exposure that we accept that exposes our nakedness. You know, when God saw man's attempt to cover their nakedness, God clothed them. Shall we expose the flesh that God covered? Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together to to cover their nakedness, but it was God who clothed them. And yet today, we expose what God covered and we justify it by saying God's silent in the matter. God didn't say not to. He has said not to. You judge what's right. Is it honoring God in His holiness to expose the very thing that He covered? Well, you see, in all of these applications, whether it be worship applications, the work of the church applications, or moral, personal moral applications, there's a, the consistent theme of how we handle the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. Give diligence or study to show yourself approved unto God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth, handling properly, cutting a straight course with the Word of truth. We've got to handle God's Word properly, and it is not handling God's properly, 
God's word properly and to say silence gives us permission to act. We cannot handle God's word in a way to try to support a predetermined interest that we have, a predetermined desire that we hold. When we rightly divide the word of God, we allow it to shape us. And we are careful not to add to it or not to take from it. In our worship, in our work as a church, in our personal moral lives. To define our faith in our lives of service to God by doing it in His name. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see, silence of the Scriptures is not our right to act. It restrains us from presumptuous sin. Let's close with Psalm 19 and verse 13. Psalm 19 and the 13th verse says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. It is a presumption to presume that because God has said what He wants and has not gone beyond that, it's a presumption to say, I can go beyond it and it'll be okay. Now I have just elevated myself above God Himself. And none of us want to do that. I know we don't want to do that. But if we don't want to do that, then let's not do that. And let's be content with what God has revealed. Let us keep, be kept back by God Himself. Let's, let God keep us back from presumptuous sin by shaping and molding our faith after what He has revealed. Instead of saying, because God has said, hasn't said anything, then we can act. Because in fact, God has said something. He said exactly what He wants. And it contains all things that pertain to life and godliness. It, it contains how to save you from your, your sins. To believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to repent of your sin, to confess your faith that He is the Son of God, and to be baptized in water for the remission of sins is what God has said is necessary to be saved. He didn't have to go through a list and say, to say, do not, do not stand on your head to be saved. Do not scratch your left elbow to be saved. He didn't have to do any of that. He told us what He wanted and what is necessary to be saved. You want to be saved? Do what God says. Be content and satisfied in your faith that when you do what He says, He'll do what He said He'll do. Save you. You're a Christian and there's sin in your life. Come back to the Lord. His way. And He'll forgive you. Confess it. Repent of it. We stand ready to assist you and pray together. Won't you respond to God's call in God's way while we stand and sing?